I'm Mark Gagan, and you're listening to the Voice of Insurance podcast in association with Advantage Go, enabling an enterprise view of exposure. This week's guest is the CEO of a fast-expanding wholesale specialty and reinsurance broking group. Nick Cook of BMS Group is a man in a hurry to make the most of global opportunities to grow the 41-year-old firm that he runs. Nick is refreshingly straightforward and to the point, and here we get detail on BMS's ambitious global build-out away from its more traditional markets in London and North America, and into Latin America, Asia and Europe. We also get a strong view on the opportunities being thrown up by big broker M&A, as well as the capital factors driving substantial investment and consolidation at independence. Nick also dissects the current fight to build challenger reinsurance brokers and how he thinks this particular game might not end well for everyone. Finally, we hear of bullish prospects for the London market and Nick's thoughts and misgivings about the current vision for London's future. We pack a lot in here, but listening back, it is Nick's boundless energy and no-nonsense passion for the task in hand that really shines through our exchange. Enjoy the podcast. Before we get started, I'm here with Rick Lindsay, Chairman of Prime Holdings and the CEO of Claims Direct Access CDA, who've kindly supported this podcast. Rick, thanks so much for your support. Why don't you briefly tell us about the Prime Group and CDA and what they could do for our listeners? Sure. We're excited to announce that CDA is going to be marketing its claims service over in London. Prime Insurance Company has done business with Lloyd Syndicate since 1995 as a cover holder and as the TPA. So we're looking to grow the TPA business. CDA has a proven track record in all 50 states, as evidenced by Prime Insurance Company's own uh, loss ratio and success in underwriting and managing claims nationwide. So we're excited to bring that to our Lloyd's partners and offer them more flexibility by issuing prime paper when necessary and letting Lloyd's fall in behind us or sharing risk and managing claims, although we'll do it a la carte and the claim service is certainly something that I think is valuable. I believe that claims is the key to success in our business. That's really the only thing we do that adds value. Obviously, you can be a good underwriter, and if the claims falls apart, the underwriting's a waste of time. If you're a good underwriter, you need to balance the scale with good claims. Well, that's great, Rick. And just to be clear, CDA handles all of Prime's claims. Correct. Well, thank you so much for that. Thanks for your support, and we'll get on with the podcast. Nick. Thank you so much for giving me some time out of what must be an incredibly busy schedule. You're busy building BMS. It's been a growing broker for a very, very long time now. Would you ever come to the point where you say your global build-out is complete, or do you think we should always be expecting more? Mark, well, thank you very much indeed for the opportunity to be part of the Voice of Insurance. The short answer to that question is no. We've just launched our Asian operations. In fact, this week, we got our license in Hong Kong. So we're now open. We've just opened in Singapore and Hong Kong. We've got further plans afoot. There'll be news coming soon in Europe. We're looking at the Middle East, Turkey. So we see a significant opportunity in both insurance and reinsurance to continue to build out our footprint. So we're far from done. It's about where we are already located. Can we add more product? Where we are already located, can we add more scale? So those are areas that we're already looking at. Emerging market, for instance, we looked at Asia for a long time. Two or three years, we were developing our plans about how and when we'd open in Asia. The right opportunity, the right time, the right product, the right people. And so we take our time, but we definitely want to be in markets with high GDP growth rates, emerging markets. 
whilst London is our hub and we're building our business out in the US, we continue to add capability in the US. We've now got eight offices in the US. So as of today, we've got 22 offices around the world with at least two or three more in the pipeline, which I hope to announce in the coming weeks and months. So I think it's incredible when you think, Mark, just how far we've come in the last seven or eight years. And you go back to BMS of old, it was a UK, US business, and now it really is a global business. And that's driven by our desire, my desire to be in the financial hubs around the world. That's the core mantra as we look, our strategy as we look to build out. We're in most, but we're certainly not in all of them. And so there's more to follow. So the longer answer is there's more to come and we're far from done. It sounds almost almost indiscriminate, your growth, but out of all the territories in the world, are there any that you're particularly favouring? You think when you look at your list and you think, wow, these are my real opportunities for now. Absolutely, Mark. We've got a fantastic London wholesale business, which we really started building out back in 2010. And you look at it today and in certain product lines, it's a top three, top four producer of income to the London market. So we're very proud of what we've built in London and we want to do more. And the market's in our favour in terms of the rating environment. That's in our favour. So we will be doing more in London. Equally, we started the sort of second phase of our build out in the US with our reinsurance play under Pete Chandler in the US. And we're now up to eight offices there. Previously, two or three years ago, we probably only had three or four. So those are our core territories and we'll continue to build on those. We've got a Latin American business, a Canadian business. We want to scale those up further. To date, we haven't looked at having an on-the-ground presence in Latin America. I think we will as our plans increase. There's only so much we can do from the financial hub that is Miami. So it is overridden by that strategic goal of being in those financial hubs and then trading with local independent retail brokers in that region. Our strategy is fundamentally that we are a wholesale and a reinsurance broker. We are not a retail broker. We do have some retail businesses around the world. Australia is a good example. But we see a position in the market as being the alternative wholesale broker to a global independent retail base and also the alternative reinsurance broker in lines that we see we can compete with the big two. So a clear strategy, a clear focus on where we want to be And we're part of the way there. We certainly are not finished. So is that the sort of unique selling proposition, USP, that you're trying to build for BMS to say that your wholesale specialty reinsurance, is that what you want people to know BMS as and for? Absolutely, Mark. Total clarity around the strategy in wholesale specialty markets and reinsurance. Complete clarity around that. And underpinning all of that is we pride ourselves in terms of what we do is we put our customers first. Retention rates in terms of our renewal book are extremely high. We pride ourselves on building trusted relationships with our customers. The transactional broking element is a given. It's client advocacy. It's that advisory role, which I think particularly as we go down technology and we're looking at increasing the pace of bringing capital to the market and bringing capital to our clients. Are we at risk of losing that high touch, high service proposition by putting your customers first? And that's very much what BMS is about. Our greatest asset in our business is our people. So customers first, people second, making sure that we're looking after our talent, retaining our talent and looking after our staff. But equally, we have the platform to attract some of the best staff in the market across the globe. So 
those are, are really the USPs for us. Clarity and strategy, customer first, and our staff. And in terms of that strategy, I go back in the annals of history and not remember any BMS M&A activity particularly, that you've always been about hiring teams and new people to go to new markets or build out what you've already got. Do you think now that you're well-financed, M&A could ever be part of your managerial toolkit, or would you rule it out and want to continue to build organically forever? Absolutely, it will be and is part of the strategy going forward. One of the advantages of securing the long-term capital that we did through British Columbia Investments and Preservation Capital is that we have significant financial resources at our disposal for M&A and generally investing in our business market. But there is a balance because we pride ourselves immensely on the culture that we have built across our global platform. We really do. And one thing that I won't do is compromise that culture through a very aggressive M&A strategy. You know, we think our culture is one of the most attractive parts of our company and people are looking to join our platform. It's empowering, it's collaborative, it puts our people first. But we do have the financial firepower at our disposal now through the BCI and PCP investment. Interestingly, we completed on two small transactions last year, both in Europe, and that's around giving us more specialty and more scale in our European hub in Spain. Where M&A is a potential to us is going back to where I said earlier, in operations overseas where we want to scale up, we'll look at some M&A opportunity, bringing new product to certain areas, looking perhaps at putting a flag in the ground in growing markets. Building a business organically around the world takes time and it takes considerable investment. So organic growth for us underpins the success of the business and is the litmus test and the benchmark of a growing healthy company. And I'm proud to say that our organic growth over the last five, six, seven years has always been double digit organic growth. But we now have the financial firepower at our disposal through our long-term investments to look at some in M&A, and we are doing. Do you think it's more likely to be the sort of friendly M&A that you take over a business that you've been dealing with for years and that you know really well Yeah, I think it strategically has to fit. The example you gave is a really good example. You might trade with an organization for a couple of years. You might then form a joint venture. And then indeed, depending on the structure and ownership of their company, you could well be an exit solution for them. So that could be one. Interestingly, you look at the London market and one of the challenges around M&A in the London market is always culture and bringing those two businesses together. So I think M&A for us is more likely to be overseas and outside of the London business. And again, making sure that it's within our strategy, i.e. its specialty lines and or its reinsurance. And do you think you've already got a critical mass in London anyway? No. And I think, as I said earlier, the market's very much in all our favours for anyone trading in the London wholesale market and the reinsurance markets in London and all the work that's going on with the Lloyd's Blueprint and streamlining the business in the UK. I think there's a lot more that we can do in London. I think we want to build on our success and our successful areas of growth and do more of what we're good at. And there's certainly an opportunity with the market in our favour to do that. So I think organic growth in London is more likely. That way it goes back to that cultural point, Mark, that I just talked about. You know, we don't want to compromise that incredible team culture that we've built in London. And so individual hires, team hires are, are more likely in London than they are overseas. 
you mentioned London's had a really good tailwind, obviously, with this harder global market, more deal flow coming into London, naturally. We've also had fallout from MMC JLT. And now we've got the Aon Willis merger, which is really putting flesh on the bones now about what is going to happen if and when it does get approved. Which of those two is the bigger tailwind to BMS, that harder market or a better market for potentially dislodging some of the talent from those larger brokers? The harder market is without question. It's cyclical. We can debate for a long time as to how long short to medium term it's here. But listening to the carriers talking about their 2020 results and their plans for 2021 by the legacy carriers that have been around a while or indeed some of the 2020 influx of new carriers, there's no question there's a consensus that this hard market is here for a while and that there is still a long way to go in a number of lines of business for pricing adequacy. We've got issues around casualty losses the interest rate environment and all the challenges that the global insurance market has to correct pricing. So as a broker in the middle of all that, we're clearly going to benefit from it. So back to what I said a little bit earlier about, we think there's significant growth opportunity in London in terms of the volume of business that is coming to the London market because local markets are challenged and capacity is withdrawing from those local markets. So we think there's a good opportunity there, which will be sustainable over the short to medium term. But equally, there's no doubt that the mergers of both JLT and Marsh and Aon Willis will create opportunity. There will be brokers within those organizations that will vote with their feet. Potentially, they may not like the culture and that may take time to develop, but those people will vote with their feet. They may indeed join existing competitors and we've already seen a lot of that happen. But equally, they could do startups Many more startups in that wholesale reinsurance world could materialize as a result of the M&A. So we've benefited, as have our competitors and the broken community as a whole, because of these mergers. And we'll see how that pans out with the Aon Willis merger in due course. But for us at BMS, we had a strong performance in 2020, despite COVID-19. And that was a result of the hardening rating environment. It is here to stay in the short to medium term. So the opportunities that present themselves because of a hardening market probably outweigh the A or Willis mergers. If you woke up tomorrow and you were the competition regulator in the EC or SEC <laughs> or wherever, would you just wave the deal through and say, bring it on, the Aon Willis deal? Uh, I'm, Mark, I'm delighted I'm not the regulator or <laughs> anymore. But short answer is yes, I would. And for reasons that I just articulated, that there will be fallout from these mergers. There always is. After all, look at BMS. BMS started 41 years ago as a result of Marsh buying CT Barry. And our industry is littered with great examples of mergers resulting in entrepreneurial spirit, leaving those organizations and starting their own companies. And so you could actually argue that this isn't the gift of the regulator. This is the gift of the client. Does the client want to be part of that organization? And if they don't, then it's likely that their broken team and the individuals will move. And equally, does the broker, does the individual that's part of that merger want to be part of that culture and that team? And so, yes, there will be fallout, I'm sure, in certain jurisdictions and certain product lines, and the regulators will require some divestiture. But equally, we mustn't forget that the client has a say in this and the, and the individuals have a say in this. And our market and our industry has clear and many examples of where people have chosen to vote with their feet 
and that entrepreneurial spirit that exists in our market and has done for generations, and that will continue. Leave it to the market, Darwinistic developments, and that's it. Well, you'd hope that the regulator sees history has clearly demonstrated that when these mergers come and the regulator perceives that there could be a threat and an overdominance of one broker or another, that actually what happens is clients vote differently and they choose to move their business. And there is. When you think of the U.S. retail environment, there are some huge U.S. retail brokers, independent, PE-backed, pension fund-backed, very ambitious, huge platforms that can challenge the status quo of these mergers. The London market in the last 18 months, Mark, has changed. Look at the landscape. The private equity that's interested in the London market has been remarkable over the last 12 to 18 months. And that will only continue. So people can see this as an opportunity, both the investor community, but also the insurance market, to disrupt that status quo that will exist through these mergers. So I think there's healthy competition across Europe, across Asia, across London, the US, So I think there'll be a natural progression and the regulator need not worry too much about the merger between Aon and Willis. You mentioned about investment backing brokers. You've had your own investment, which we've discussed, BCI and PCP. About 18 months ago, that was, wasn't it? And I remember reading an interview, one of the issues coming out of MMC, JLT and Willis, one of the most obvious things that people have identified is an opportunity potentially in reinsurance, obviously one of your core lines. Back in that interview, you said reinsurance clients were screaming out for another broking option to Guy Carpenter, Aon and Willis Re, dependent on competition rules, Aon Willis or just Aon Re. 18 months on from that, do you think you've succeeded in building a credible alternative to those really big players? It certainly was a bold statement, and I'm glad to say I think we've backed it up, Mark. So look, we've made significant progress. There is no doubt in our reinsurance platform. I'm proud to say that revenues are now through the 100 million mark, and that's a benchmark. When you look at the chasing pack, if I can call it that, we feel that we're starting to pull away. But I think the important point here is in the chosen areas and the product lines that we're in, in the reinsurance world, can we compete with the big two? And yes, we can. I think it is unlikely that any one platform can compete on the same scale across a multitude of global locations and products in the entire reinsurance offering with Aon Re and Guy Carpenter. But within all of those different product lines and all those different jurisdictions, there will be many of us in the chasing pack that will be the credible alternative. And I think it's a question of all of us finding our USB, finding our niche, finding what lines are more relevant, where are we prepared to invest, where are we prepared to chase the talent. So, look, we've been in the reinsurance business for 40 years. I mean, it is BNS's DNA. So this isn't some win that we've just suddenly made up as a result of capital investment from BCI, PCP, or as a result of the M&A that's going on. You know, it's been a long progress in terms of, you know, 40 years of building out a reinsurance program. We're far from done. We think there's plenty more opportunity across the whole reinsurance spectrum, treaty, fact, retro, capital markets, cap advisory, also investing heavily in analytics, which we pride ourselves on. But I think our plans have probably broadened since that statement to the insurance inside of some 18 months ago, unquestionably, we were really looking at two core hubs for our reinsurance business being London and the US, and we've continued to build those out as I've already articulated. But now I think there's opportunity elsewhere. I think what potentially the Aon Willis merger has created 
is less choice in other regions. So there are other regions around the world where you might argue now, Mark, there are only two reinsurance brokers. That isn't healthy. So there's opportunity for us there. Again, you look at the retro market, and that's with my London hat on. You look at the retro market, the vast majority is controlled by the big two. Is that healthy for the carriers? No. So we hear a lot of anecdotal noise coming out of the carriers about we want alternatives, we need alternatives, and a number of brokers have reacted to that. My challenge back to the carriers now is when those brokers get the bench strength and they make those investments, the market should support those alternatives. So we're entering a really interesting phase in the build out of reinsurance, no question. And the arms race in terms of chasing that talent is now hotter than it ever has been. And in terms of the barriers to entry, there are significant investments to be made in analytics and brain power and technology and all that kind of stuff. Do you think you're in some sort of sweet spot where you're big enough to be able to afford some of these investments, but nimble enough to be able to be quicker and better at it than some of the bigger brokers? I think that's a great question. And, and it's, the observation is absolutely correct. In reinsurance, it's a big boy's game. Scale matters. We know firsthand how hard it is to build a reinsurance business that has all of the support, the technology, the analytics to support the front end on the broking side. We know we've been doing it for 40 years. So and it seems to be rather de rigueur at the moment, if I may say, to open up a reinsurance business. It isn't just about hiring the talent. In fact, the level of investment and capital spend in building out a truly global reinsurance broking company is substantial. So I don't think everybody will succeed. I really don't. Some have been doing it for years. We are one of them. It's in our DNA. It's in a number of our competitors' DNA. But some of the newer players that have declared an interest in building out reinsurance, welcome, because we all welcome a competitive market, but it is tough and it requires enormous investment over a sustained period of time. So it's all the actuarial, all that sort of stuff when you go into beauty parade. A number of those support functions are just a ticket to the dance. You can't even be a credible alternative unless you have it. So it's cart and horse, horse and cart. You know, which do you put first? You hire the talent and then build your actuary or cap modeling, your technology, or do you do that first, which is very cost prohibitive, and then suddenly you go after the talent. We've learned all those lessons at BMS. We think breaking through 100 million, over 200 people now working in our reinsurance business around the world, that we are starting to really increase the scale and the reach of our reinsurance business. And as I said earlier, Mark, we're in a fortunate position where we have long-term capital with very deep pockets to back up that investment. And they equally understand the opportunity that we see in that reinsurance sector across the globe. Actually, on that point about investment, it seems to be these days that brokers of your scale could stay private and independent almost indefinitely while continually financing and refinancing that growth. And in terms of BCI and PCP, should we be viewing them as almost permanent investors or not sort of investors that want to exit at some point in four or five years' time? Everybody that makes an investment, Mark, including you and I, wants a return on that investment. So we're very fortunate in securing the long-term cap of the BCI. That was a goal of mine. I wanted to secure the future of BMS by attracting long-term capital. Indefinite is the key point that you make, and it's the key question. In the short to medium term, what does that mean? Over the next five to 10 years, we have a clear vision backed up by BCI and BCP as to what we want to deliver 
and where we want to grow. I think looking beyond that is difficult. We have a private equity investor in PCP and private equity has a limited investment cycle. Again, the advantage of BMS is that we are majority owned by the employees and by British Timber Investments, i.e. you know, we can take a longer term view over our investments. We have no prescribed end date. Looking back at where we've come from, we're immensely proud of what we've built. Are we near completing that? No, we are not. We've got a lot more we want to do. And that is what BCI and PCP bought into. So when you look at the independent environment, it very much depends on the structure of the business. There will be coming imminently into our market a lot of M&A. Why? We've got huge investor interest in insurance distribution. It's a solid capital base. It's a high cash generative business. So we are going to see a lot of continued investment in terms of M&A coming into our market, the global insurance market. There will be a number of smaller brokers, independent brokers that are looking at succession, that are looking at the ownership, that are looking at the changing tax environment, and will be thinking, is now the time that I should look to liquidate and move on in terms of liquidity event? So there will be opportunity there, there is no doubt. Then there is the other section of the market, which is independent brokers that are owned entirely by private equity. And they sit in a very large private equity fund that has a finite shelf life. And that private equity is gearing that company to grow as fast as it can to make the return that they want. And so there will be opportunity that comes out of that. And then there's a section of the market that has multiple investors and very common in the US, less common in the UK. So it's a very common model in the US. You've got pension fund money, employee ownership and private equity. And that was the goal that we set out to achieve. And I'm delighted that we did because we can look through this in a longer term lens. So I think there's going to be a lot of activity around the independent sector in terms of M&A. But as far as BMS is concerned, we have secured our long-term future, unquestionably with pension fund investments. And we at some juncture, I don't doubt, as we grow and others in our market have also done that, they've looked to refinance and bring in new investors and exit some investors and allow some staff to take some liquidity and retire and move on. And I think it's a wonderful model. And that's the model that we've embraced. Let's go back to technology. We're in such an interesting time. And me as a journalist sitting here the last four or five years reporting on this upsurge in enthusiasm and excitement around technology and insurance coming together with the insure tech phenomenon, as we've dubbed it. Do you think as a business of your medium-sized scale with investment, but still small enough to really get the growth, do you think technology and the adoption of technology of some of this new technology might be a trump card for you guys? What's your sort of attitude in the way you're interacting with this insuretech phenomenon? Obvious statement, but data is critical to the value proposition in both reinsurance and in specialty. So whichever sector we choose to look at on our platform, but investing in data and analytics is expensive, but it needs to be alongside the high touch service value proposition. And I think, and I'm sure we're going to come on and talk about the market in a second as to what the market might look like. And I think that balance is absolutely crucial. But equally, you can invest in the technology, but you've also got to invest in the talent that applies that technology. So I think it's two-sided in, in that respect. There is no doubt in my mind, and I know that there's consensus around the insurance broking CEOs in London, that we want to see that influx of technology speed up our ability to provide capital solutions to our customers in a far more cost-effective and efficient way. 
but it must not replace the face-to-face negotiation and broking. And it won't. I just don't think it will. I think there is a consensus across the whole marketplace that face-to-face negotiation is all that EC3 stands for. It's all that the London market, not just Lloyd, but the London market stands for. It is the London market's USP. But what we do behind that is archaic, is slow, is cost prohibitive. And that's what we need to focus our attention on in terms of investing in that data. But wearing a different hat, and BMS has the financial resources to do that, and we're doing that. And we've got a number of projects. In fact, I would argue that when you think back 10 years ago, we were the first ones to trade on an iPad on the floor of Lloyd's. We were the first company to launch an innovation lab in the broken community. You know, we like to take a lead on that. And now that we've got the financial resources we have, we can invest in our data. And that's a crucial point when I think if you look at it from a market perspective, Mark, because not everybody is going to have that luxury. Not everybody has the financial resources that BMS has and others do. So what we don't want to see is a very benign data-driven market controlled by four or five big carriers and four or five big brokers. That is not a healthy, diverse insurance market in London. That's not what we want. So we need to be cognizant, wearing my Libra hat, of those specialty smaller brokers that bring diversity of product to the market. And they need a trading floor. And they need to have that dynamic Lloyd's platform to go and trade. And it's good for the London market that those businesses are there and that they're growing. So investing in data is one thing. Absolutely, we need to do it. We need to take cost out of the business. We need to speed up the process. But we also need to recognize we mustn't damage what we have built in EC3 and what is the unique selling point of our market. Do you think there's a cultural question here, Nick, on on this, with some of the big brokers perhaps building these massive data lakes, but always some of the carriers and technologists might say that actually some of that culturally is blocking the progress because they have the attitude that they own the customer and that they own the data and that some of the great leaps forward, perhaps that people are suggesting will happen in insurance will be when you, the broker, allow your customer's data to go straight through to the carrier in some way and the market itself, that culturally you don't mind that happening. And at the moment, some of the technologists would say that actually the brokers are culturally the blocker. Look, in certain product lines, unquestionably, we should be embracing that concept of moving our customers' data far quicker through the value chain to ultimately to the carriers. No question. And that's more of a commodity type product. If I'm sitting here wearing my BMS hat and I look at the lines of business that we trade in, Mark, we're in that complex risk environment, the classic specialty risk environment, which Lloyd's prides itself on. Lloyd's has been the global hub of that business for years. And I can't see the example you just gave working in that environment. I can't. I think, you know, when you're dealing in complex, hard to place risks around the world, you're going to have to continue to have that face-to-face negotiation. And you're going to have to hire the talent that understands those businesses, understands their clients' needs to get a deal done. You're then backing it up with a far quicker, more data-driven subscription market We embraced the launch of Key that Brit announced as the future. I think absolutely that's a potential future for the London market in terms of the follow market and applying automated capacity, which can drastically speed up the process. But I do think the example you gave is in a very heavily commoditized, perhaps personalized business, not in what London really stands for, which is delegated authority, complex risk and reinsurance. And I think that's different. So 
you know, ultimately everyone's in agreement that the future of the market is a hybrid model between using technology to take cost out and speed the efficiency of the market, but equally embrace and continue to embrace the unique selling point of our market and what EC3 is all about. And quite frankly, Mark, what our clients love, and it doesn't matter what broking house you're sitting in, I will challenge anyone that says your client doesn't enjoy the whole London market experience. They do. You know, I know that firsthand. Our clients love coming to London because of the whole London experience. Something that the London Matters work picked up very well indeed. It isn't just about Lloyd's. It isn't just about EC3. It's about the whole of what London offers as an environment. And that's what our clients enjoy. So actually, there's another example. Whatever we decide as a market, we must remember you've got to put your customer first. And if your customer turns around and says, I really enjoy and see value in how London trades in a face-to-face backed up by technology, and that's what I want, and I'm the paying customer, then more fool us if we don't listen. What about a business, you say it's commoditized and big number stuff and small premium stuff. We've got sophisticated customers, say, like Rolls-Royce Aero engines, where I read an article that the engineers have real-time data of every single engine that is firing anywhere in the world. And perhaps if you were their broker, would you be happy to have that data streaming live to their underwriters so that they can all learn a lot more about the risk and get insights and give risk management advice to each other and, and all that kind of stuff? And as a broker, do you think you should actually allow that to happen and not worry about being disintermediated? Again, I think it very much depends on what line of business you're in and what class of business you're in. If you're in that line of business, you're susceptible to that disruption, then that's the way it's going to go, Mark. I think that is absolutely the way that it's going to materialize. I'm still a great believer in the large and complex risk, which forms so much of our market and so much of what we do, particularly we at BMS. It is all about the experience and the technical knowledge of our talent in delivering the best possible solution for our clients. And it will be supported by significant investment in data. But I do not see in that area it being substituted by the example that you gave. You mentioned about Key, the automatic underwriting initiative. What's the broking response to that, really? Do you have to become an automatic broker in some way if that happens? The short answer is yes. Brokers with good data will get ahead of the curve. And that played out unquestionably with Key. And I don't know the detail. I will never know the detail, but I can imagine those brokers that provided far greater depths of data to Key and Brit probably got the lion's share of the capacity. So it goes back to the conversation we had earlier around, we need to be cognizant of some of the smaller brokers. But this is nothing new, Mark. Automated broking, I would argue, has been around a while. I mean, whether you look at client treaties, there have been a few of those without naming them. You've had autofac, you've had in-house pens through delegated authorities. So I think that the market's been full of those automated processes before. We need to significantly speed it up. And as I mentioned earlier, I absolutely endorse that as the future. And I know that capital will be interested in deploying their resources into a Lloyd's market with a more automated follow market along the lines of key. We've already seen that. And I think John Neal and Lloyd's around Blueprint 2 are doing some great work in attracting new capital, which will fundamentally change the subscription market, syndicate in a box, key, another good example. So I see the value in the efficiency that an automated process brings. But I go back to what I've said many times already, 
in this podcast with you, it cannot and will not compromise providing clients with complex needs of choice and solutions. And to do that, you have got to invest in talent. So you never need to worry. As long as you look after your client, you're going to be fine as a broker. You never need to worry about them running off because um, they come to you because uh, they want someone to sort out their insurance and risk management problems for them. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it goes back to that client advocacy, which certainly first-hand experience from our clients. We hear time and time again that what they enjoy is the client advocacy, is the high-touch level of service. And that's because of the markets and, and the lines of business that we're trading in. I absolutely understand that doesn't fit everybody and that technology will automate vast sections of our market that don't need that high touch, high level of service. But for great swathes of our market, that is a requirement. And that's an area that we see at BMS that we can add value. And to do that, you've got to continue to invest in your people and you've got to continue to attract the best talent. Does it make a slightly different proposition for the broker of the future that the talent of the future is going to presume to be more technical, more able to analyze portfolios and look at data and streams and trends and all that kind of stuff? I couldn't agree more. And I think when we take the broader subjects of diversity and inclusion, one of the streams that we're working with at BMS is diversity of employment. I think now, and I'm sure many of my competitors and many people in the market are doing this, you're looking at some of the big professional companies, you're looking at law firms. You're looking at the accountancy firms, you're looking at the banking community, you're looking at areas that we traditionally wouldn't have looked at in terms of hiring new talent into our market. We are absolutely doing that. So diversity of thought, diversity of talent is a natural progression as we move into a more technological market. Obviously, Blueprint 1 was the big a la carte menu. Blueprint 2 is execution of the small number of things that we've now chosen from that big list we had before. So which parts of the Lloyd's Blueprint 2 are you most looking forward to seeing being implemented? I embrace and endorse the influx and the desire to bring new capital to the market. And the launch of the ILS plays is exciting. Syndicate in a box, I think, is a great outcome. Just looking at the private equity world again and looking at the pension fund world, their interest in the Lloyds platform and the Lloyds market has increased exponentially because of the desire to, to bring in that new capital. And that's healthy. That's healthy for the market. That's a big win for me. Unquestionably, the desire of Lloyds and the Lloyds market to cut costs. I forget the number, but I think off the top of my head, it was 800 million, something in the region of that range, Mark. And that's a good thing. And everybody, all stakeholders in the market, brokers included, must play their part. And that will speed up the investment in technology, which will speed up e-trading, which will create less friction in the chain, which, to what we talked about earlier, is only a good thing and is a good outcome. But there are other areas that worry me. I think some of the thinking around the delegated authority, and you will know only too well, the binder business, the delegated authority business, has been a USB for Lloyds for decades and should remain so. Absolutely should remain so. A number of similar broking companies to us, it's a core part of their business. It's a significant part of our business. We see a real opportunity in using technology and the Lloyds platform to grow that portfolio. But I think the thinking at the moment is not necessarily joined up. So I'd want to see more emphasis around capturing and working together with the broking community and the delegated authority space. And the last point I'd make, which is perhaps, and maybe this is just my sense, but a nervousness coming out of Lloyd's around, well, we don't just want to be a specialty market. But actually, let's be frank, it is one of their great selling points. They are the global hub. We are, as a market, 
the global hub for specialty insurance and reinsurance. And let's do more of it, Mark. Why don't we just do more of it? Let's not be afraid of growing our portfolio from 25% to 40%. Let's do more of it. We know it's profitable business. It's that high touch, high service, complex risk that is synonymous with the London market. So let's speed up how we can bring capital to our clients in that sector and let's do more of it. I do sense there's a little bit of a nervousness. And why do I say that? I say that because the holy grail is business that's never come to Lloyd's before. And we're going to use technology to go after that. Really? Are we sure it's the profitable business that we want? And so therefore, why don't we just, particularly in a Harley market, why don't we really concentrate on building on what we're really good at? And let's do more of where we know we add value as a marketplace. Well, I'm sure you'll be doing just that then, that you're sticking to your knitting and growing where you know you've got a comparative advantage. And I'm sure using a resurgent London market to do that. Nick, I think I've gone through all my questions. I've really, really enjoyed our time and I've taken up quite a lot of your time. So I really appreciate that. And good luck with everything. Sounds really exciting. And uh, come back and give us an update. Thank you, Mark. I most certainly will. Great to see you. Great to have the opportunity and anytime. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, don't forget to subscribe or leave a like or a review or recommendation on whatever podcast platform you used to access this program. These really help get the word out. Before we go, just a quick reminder that advertising slots are available here and in other places in the Voice of Insurance podcasts. Podcasting is the fastest growing medium and attracts a high quality audience of key decision makers. It's also an intimate medium where you, the listener, are right in the room with me and the interview subjects. Needless to say, that means it's a great way of getting your message out directly to an audience because you know you've got their full attention. It's also very cost effective. So get in touch with Mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com to find out how you could be speaking directly to the industry. The Voice of Insurance is produced in association with Advantage Go, enabling an enterprise view of exposure. Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan. Music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.thevoiceofinsurance.com. Thank you.